Wiat's escape chat, Rosalie Fish Sitsta, Buckleshoot Hubshed. Hello, my name is Rosalie Fish, and I'm from the Cowlitz and Muckleshoot tribes in Washington State. I live on the Muckleshoot Reservation. I run to empower and uplift the voices of Indigenous people and to represent the missing and murdered Indigenous women epidemic. Hello everyone and welcome to the Triple Knot Pod. I'm your host Haley and I started this podcast to unite the voices of young women who are running on the road of self-discovery while impacting the world around them. I've been particularly drawn to the idea of exploring the intersection of running with social justice, so I'm wicked excited to be joined by 18-year-old Rosalie Fish today who is calling in from Iowa. So welcome Rosalie. And thank you so much for making the time today amidst your busy schedule. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. I always get I'm very flattered and humbled when invited on these podcasts because it means that people want to share this story. And that's I'm always really cool for that. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah, I feel a little starstruck myself talking to you. So <laughs> no, um. definitely. <laughs> So before we really lace up into it, um, I want to warm up a little just by acknowledging that we are both college students recording on a Monday night and that (laughs) I'm also about to contribute to draining some of your emotional energy and time. So I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share maybe what the best and worst parts of your day were and something that you're looking forward to for tomorrow. Well, thank you. Yeah, Um, I would say the one of the worst parts of my day um, was probably um, I'm in a very terrible diversity class at the moment where the teacher is not very um, formal or punctual. Mm. And so having to go through that sometimes is um, a little frustrating to have mm. to feel like I almost need to educate the educator sometimes. Mm. But I think the best part of my day is I have um, wonderful athletic trainers here at Iowa Central, and they're always taking care of me. And um, I guess what I'm looking forward to tomorrow is I have, for this next week, my training gets to lay off a little bit, and we get to rest up, and I'm excited for that. It's always great to have have running in a team to bring you back down, no matter how your day is going. <laughs> yeah. So I first heard of you last May, I believe, in 2019 through a Mile Split article. So rather than me summarizing the media's summary of you, in brief, (laughs) who are you and what ultimately led to your Mile Split feature um, and just your presence in many other media platforms now, for that matter? Okay, so yeah, um... My name is Rosalie Fish. I'm a Native American runner, and I grew up on the Muckleshoot Reservation in Washington State. And what led to um, my mile split interview, I get them a little mixed up, but I'm pretty sure that it was after um, I qualified for Washington State Championships my senior year in four events. And during this championship meet, I dedicated my four races to a missing or murdered indigenous woman in my community. 
let's jump back to what your path into running was. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would say that I actually used running as a form of recovery um, for my mental health, I would say. My freshman year of high school, I struggled with a lot of just insecurities and a little bit of, I misused my antidepressants at times when I was 15. And a form of recovery and a form of healing that I found was running. And so running actually gave me the space to heal and um, to become a better, stronger and healthier person. Mm. When you did begin running, how did your identity influence your first encounters with the sport? Um, Yeah, I would definitely say that running for a Native American school and having a tribal uniform really could be discouraging. Uh, based on the prejudice I would face from other schools, especially Mm. schools that were bigger than me. Mm. And so, um, yeah, it would be very difficult at times to show up to a track meet and to be deemed as completely unimportant. Or when even when I would race a good time, I wouldn't be included in large invitational meets because they thought, oh, well, that's the girl from tribal school. He's not going to do anything outstanding. Or every time I ran something fast, they always thought that it was some kind of fluke, like I would never be able to do it again. And so I really just had this external box placed on me based off of my ethnicity and where I'm from in my community. And so it definitely it made it challenging to continue racing, but it was also a reason why I needed to continue racing. Because every time that I defied that stereotype, I think I really possibly opened minds to the fact that there are Native runners and Native people who can be successful. Mm. Wow. Yeah, kudos to you because running in itself is a hard sport to do. (laughs) And that extra layer of your identity making you feel like you don't belong in it is just an unfair aspect of the sport (laughs) that you had to get through. Um, Yeah. It's, I also think it's ironic, too, because people, I, I feel like people often say you should keep sports and politics separate from one another, but that is, like, a perfect example of sports are, in, or politics are inherently a part of sport. The rules around, you know, who gets to, who gets to race and, and how you're expected to present yourself in races and just the structure that even makes running accessible to begin with is all political, so... Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I never even thought about it like that. <laughs> and like yesterday in the Super Bowl, I'm sure um, you're aware that the Chiefs won. That's that's politics in, in sport. The mm-hmm. first female NFL Super Bowl coach was was there. But yeah, that's also how being an, an indigenous athlete, how does seeing your culture represented in professional sports teams like the Chiefs? How does that reflect on your self-perception or your worth in your culture? Thank you so much for asking that because it um, it really has been difficult for natives nationwide to watch mm-hmm. the Super Bowl. And many even choose not to participate in watching the Super Bowl bec- for their own sanity. And yet we're still surrounded by images of racism and tokenism mm-hmm. and stereotypes. And it can it is really hurtful 
not only to see these images, but to watch them be continuously defended. Mm-hmm. And I will say um, there have been times where I will show up to a sporting event and unexpectedly see a Native American mascot and see a crowd engaging in racist behavior mm-hmm. like a tomahawk chop or some kind of chant. And it really is almost terrifying to mm-hmm. be there and watch that happen and to know that you are being targeted, whether you realize it or not, or whether you accept it or not, if it's direct, they are targeting yourself, your race and your community. And so it's it's also another challenge that keeps Native Americans away from sports is mm-hmm. racism against Native Americans is ingrained in our athletic society. And it is very discouraging, but I also see a lot of resistance now. So that gives me hope. So that being said, what is the general participation of running within your your high school or your community? How's that view, How is running as a sport viewed in your community? Unfortunately, I the for three years I was the only runner in my school. Oh wow! How did you maintain your training and your self motivation? Um, it was definitely very difficult. I would say for my first two years of training, um, I was practically on my own, and I had to reach out to other members of the community, and I found. Uh, my coach for my first two years of high school actually was a volunteer coach. He wasn't hired by the school. Um, he just thought that I had potential and he really felt for my position that I was in for running. And he gave me training plans, but it was still up to me to do them on my own. So actually a majority of the workouts that I did in high school were solo. Mm. So you said that your coach saw your potential. When did you see your potential as a runner and how did that change the sport for you? Um, I definitely didn't see any type of potential in myself until uh, my late junior year. And I had taken countless different running mentors and coaches to really just ingrain it in my head that I can do something. And I really did not Mm -hmm. want to believe them. And it wasn't until my junior and senior year that I really began to realize that I can impact myself and others with running. Is there anything you attribute to that not wanting to believe in your own ability? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Running is, like you said, running is already hard, Mm -hmm. right? 800 repeats are already hard, but Mm -hmm. let alone now having to do them on my own by myself Mm -hmm. and having to do them with the pressure of knowing that if I don't do well in this meet, I'm going to teach or show the people who are showing prejudice against me that they were right about me. Mm. And it was really just a lot of weight and sometimes still is to know that if I don't do well, if I don't perform, then I'm not breaking that expectation. I'm not breaking that box that Mm. others have. Mm. So when you did start running, how did that change or contribute to your life as um, a member of your community? Uh, I think it definitely inspired my community. I would have, um, I would win a certain meet or do well in a very public or large meet. 
and it would make my tribal papers. And that really meant a lot to my school and a lot of my community members because they knew that I was breaking that bias. Mm. And it's something that we all do collectively together all the time is something that we also do for each other is break that bias, exceed that box, you know, prove that stereotype wrong. And it's not, we're not just doing it for ourselves, but we're doing it for our home and our families and, and the entire community. Mm. What is the best feeling that you get out of your running? I think back in high school, the feeling that I would get was almost like a spiteful feeling or maybe even vengeance to know that I would show up to a meet and I would beat the people who were possibly showing some kind of racist behavior towards me Mm. but now I've taken running into a much healthier way which is that I'm constantly exceeding my own expectations Mm. and that I'm given the opportunity and the platform to represent indigenous people Mm. and so now running is much more important to me than it ever was I used to value running because of some of the negative aspects or maybe some of the spiteful aspects that I had. But now it's really more just a way to represent my community and to raise awareness to the issues that matter to me. How did you shift to that perspective? I think it really took when I ran for missing and murdered Indigenous women at my state track meet. Uh, That was one of the most life-changing experiences I've ever had because it was the first time that I was really genuinely running for somebody else. Mm. It was the first time where I didn't want to run this race because I wanted a PR. I wanted to run this race because I needed my relatives to be seen. And that really changed my outlook on running itself. Mm. So you already spoke a little bit to the discrimination that you feel as an Indigenous athlete, but specifically with the missing and murdered Indigenous women um, epidemic, What does that epidemic mean to you and how else does it show up in your daily life? Yeah, I would say the epidemic is is something that I've really grown up with. It's something that's ingrained not only in mainstream society, but it's also been normalized in our tribal reservations. As I was growing up and up until I became a high schooler, it really was normalized for me to see women go missing. Mm. I really didn't realize just how tragic and the numbers were as far as the, the statistics go for the amount of Indigenous women who go missing and really how unproportionate that was to the rest of the world. And so when I found out that Indigenous women are actually being targeted, that my family and my community is being targeted for being Indigenous and for being women. It was really terrifying to realize that we are still being, I guess, we are still in danger. I didn't realize the danger that we were facing until I actually looked into the fact that this is an epidemic. And um, so now it does affect my daily life in a lot of ways. And ever since working with families of Indigenous women, it can really change your outlook 
and your perspective on the way you see things. I personally tend to be a lot more paranoid than I was before working on this issue mm. because I'm constantly thinking, what could happen next? Who could it be next? So when you say the word epidemic, can you elaborate on that a little bit in terms of, because I, I can imagine maybe in my community, if, if I heard someone was missing or someone was murdered, that would be a shock to the community. And that's, that's nothing I've ever fa- really faced before. Um, so I can't imagine that being a regular occurrence for me. So can you maybe paint a picture of of the numbers um, or statistics that you might have? Yeah, absolutely. So first, um, as far as violence goes, Indigenous women are extremely vulnerable to violence, and so much so that murder is the third leading cause of death in Native women, which is an extremely high number. But this this is the type of frequency that murder is happening to Indigenous women. So another way to describe it is every four out of five Native American women have experienced violence within their lifetime. Mm -hmm. So whether it be psychological, sexual, or physical, it is very common for an Indigenous woman to experience violence as she becomes an adult. I think another thing to really recognizes the Urban Indian Health Institute, which is a Native American organization that really looks at um, finding data for Native people because we've been so neglected in that. Mm. They found 5,712 cases across the U.S. of missing or murdered Indigenous women, and only 116 of those cases were logged into the Department of Justice database. Wow. And so I guess the epidemic not only comes from the amount of violence that Native American women are facing, but also it encompasses the neglect that comes mm. with that. So essentially you're you're trying to cope with this loss of a family or community member and you're also trying to do the work of the police, um, maybe fight the systems that are in place while taking care of your your family and your personal safety and mental well-being. How how is your community equipped to handle that um, or maybe not equipped with the resources to handle that? That is a lot to put on on anyone. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that everybody handles it differently. In all honesty, as I guess um, as bad as this might sound, it's almost like we've grown up knowing that we have to bear a lot. So mm-hmm. a lot of Indigenous people, and especially Indigenous women, we just power through it, whatever that might look like, however ugly that might be. We know that we have no other option but to keep moving forward, whether it's one day at a time or even one hour at a time. There's no other choice but to keep moving, to keep pushing. And I've, I've seen a lot of that, especially with the mother of Jacqueline Salios, a woman that I ran for and who was shot by um, local police when they were attempting to arrest her boyfriend. And she was pregnant at the time, along with other children. And unjustly, 
of course, it was um, this was a matter of police brutality. And her mother had to hire private investigators and fight for this accountability, all at the same time grieving her daughter. Mm. And it's, it's a very unfair position. Mm. Yeah, and I, I can't imagine the lifetime of, of healing from that trauma that that maybe can never fully, fully be, um, fully be overcome. So how have you gained the courage to stand up against this issue? I think it's um, fair to say that I sometimes still am, and I definitely was at the beginning, absolutely terrible, terrified. Um, especially in the way that I am viewed, uh, people might call me controversial, or like you said, Ironically, um, they want me to keep, keep politics out of sports. Mm. And there are definitely people out there who do not understand why I need to do this. But even they might understand why, or maybe they just don't care. Whatever the reason is, I do have some pushback at times. Mm. And um, I think what really keeps me going is every time that we make that bit of progress or every time mm. that the movement is gets a little bit more publicity, gets more support. I realize that this is a group effort, a nationwide effort across Native Americans who we never met each other before, mm. but we want nothing more than to protect each other. Mm. And so that definitely keeps me going. Along with staying in contact with my mentors and my family, I, I definitely have my bad days, but I always come out knowing this is why I need to do it. Mm. For me, I guess trying to frame it from the for or for the perspective of someone like myself who who doesn't have any um, connection to the Native community, I I guess I see it as I live on lands that have historically been that have historically belonged to Native people. And I exist in the systems that continue to oppress Native communities. So for me, that's enough of a reason to feel a sense of responsibility for at least caring. So I hope, I, yeah, I hope that's, I, I, ho I hope that can mean something. <laughs> oh my gosh, you definitely have no idea, um, especially in recent light with the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. Just anybody re- confirming my feelings about anything mascots just the missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic anybody when they confirm and validate how i feel it, it means so much like definitely i i just remember somebody had agreed with me i had never even met the, i hadn't met them until they had came up and talked to me about how much they disliked the chiefs and i just thought you made my entire day because i've spent the rest of this day trying to convince and educate others why the chiefs are terrible yeah it's like it's really hard for me to hear you hear you speak because i i can see you getting emotional and i can imagine how it must it must feel for you to talk about and and i feel myself <laughs> like i feel myself tearing up and and get the chills when when you talk but it's something that has never really hit me before that I've never had to grow, grow up with or live with every day. And one thing you said is that, that you can feel paranoid a lot. So I'm wondering when you just go out for a run or you're trying to 
exist in your daily life, do you carry fear with you? Um, I do make a habit of carrying around um, mace, mace or anything like that. But I will say um, the paranoia that I've adapted is actually more present in the way that I view other women more than myself, surprisingly. Um, whether it be passing a woman who needs gas money and me not having gas money and suddenly I'm trying to find ways to get gas money so that she can get where she needs to go and she's not stuck and unsafe. Or I was on a 12-mile run last Sunday and I saw a bag of groceries that was dumped, kind of like it was dropped on a, on a walking path. And I stop and I start, mm -hmm. like, my start, my heart starts beating, like, was somebody taken? Was, mm -hmm. you know, did somebody get assaulted? And then I have to, and then I'm, like, looking for my phone, like, do I call 911? Or is this just a symptom? Of, is this just a side effect of the work that I'm doing? I had re later realized that there was a blizzard and there was trash blown everywhere. Mm -hmm. but, but this is kind of... That's just where my mind takes me sometimes. Mm. So it's more of for other people's safety than than yourself. Yeah, I um, I usually do pretty well as far as um, how I feel about my own safety. Ironic. I just I am now realizing that sounds kind of ironic or but I just definitely noticed the way that I view other women is that. They are constantly under threat and mm. that I need to do something to stop them. Mm. That's interesting. Do you, um, how does your family support you or how do you, do you have a large family? How do you support them? I definitely have a very, very big family. My parents divorced and then both remarried. So I have mm. a total of nine family members between four parents and five siblings. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I come from a very... Oh, oh yeah. I was just saying, I come from a very small family. I'm an only child, so... Uh, it is a blessing and a curse. I think both have their blessings and curses. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I, with a lot of women in my family, I would say... I have five women in my family. Um, I constantly feel the need to protect. For sure, especially my siblings. Um, well, both my mothers, um, my stepmother is black. She's um, from Ghana. And my youngest two half-siblings are also um, both feminists. And with this intersectionality that almost all of my family members face, it does make them vulnerable to violence. It does make them more vulnerable to systematic and social discrimination. And it does worry me a lot. And it makes me, they are definitely the driving force behind why I want to fix things. So do you almost feel like you're at a lesser risk of harm than the rest of your family based off of those intersections? Um, I would say that I've been very blessed to have a life that has been relatively safe, I would say. I've always been safe. And 
As far as the amount of traumatic experiences that most Native American women face and a lot of Native girls have faced on their reservation, I will say that I have avoided a lot of trauma just based off of my family and honestly pure luck. And a lot of my family members aren't able to say the same. Mm. So this is why I feel like I definitely have the pr a privilege in the sense that I don't have as much trauma holding me down and weighing on me as other Native American women might. Mm. Which is why I feel like I need, I feel the need to step in. Mm. That's really powerful to use your voice and, and the sense of of privilege you still feel in the face of discrimination in that way. You said that you have a lot of mentors in your life. Um, can you speak to who some of those mentors are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first mentor um, that probably a lot of people, if they know my name, they know her name as well, is Jordan Marie Daniel. Mm -hmm. She's from the Lakota tribe, and she has dedicated her life to serving American Indians, whether it be through her dozens of jobs and her running itself. Uh, it was really everything she does is to better the situations for Native American communities. And she originally was the first uh, runner that I knew to run with the handprint at the um, Boston Marathon, the 2019 Boston Marathon. And she really, um, I guess, inspired me. She moved me when I saw another Native American woman using her platform and raising awareness and doing something. She really gave me that push that I needed. She showed me that you don't have to be powerless. And so I immediately chose her as my role model. I even asked her if I could, I straight up asked her if I could copy and said, can I please do what you did at the Boston Marathon? Can I run with pain at my state track meet? I want to make a difference like you. I want to, I don't want to be powerless anymore. And she was totally behind me. And ever since then, we've been really close, actually. That's, that's incredible. That's such a special connection to, to share with someone. Um, can you elaborate a little bit? I don't think we, I don't think you mentioned what the paint was. Can you elaborate what that looked like for you? Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, no worries. Yeah. So in order to represent the missing and murdered indigenous women, activists have been using red paint on their bodies. So they'll put a red handprint over their mouth as a way to represent the historical and generational violence that has silenced indigenous women. And along with the letters MMIW down one of our legs uh, to create an acronym for the epidemic. Have you been able to meet Jordan in person before? No, we haven't, unfortunately. Yeah, she really? is eight times busier than I am. And unfortunately, right now we live um, across the states from each other. But I will say this is actually relatively common around some Native people, mm. just because it's it can be so hard, us having a, such a small population, it can be really hard to find other Native folks who 
might relate to us as far as culturally or ethnically. And so I do have a, a lot of Native friends, Native American friends, actually, who most of our contact is all via social media. Mm. It's because it can be difficult. I mean, I, I don't have anybody here at this school, as far as I know, that is from a reservation like I am. Okay, well, have you been able to spread more awareness or spread the movement of running with the handprint over your mouth across the United States? I think so. Um, I would like to think that I made an impact. Um, When I originally put on my paint, I didn't think I was really going to affect anybody but those at my meet. But then a few weeks after I had ran with the paint, at my state track meet, um, my story ended up making international headlines. And the next thing you know, my mom is calling me and said, oh my gosh, Rosie, you're on the Australia Yahoo's sports page. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have people who message me from France just saying, you know, hi, Rosalie, you haven't met me, but I read about you. and this, I really think I wanted to thank you for educating me about this topic. And that really is powerful to me in the sense that I didn't think that I could make a difference, that I did feel powerless. But then I took a leap of faith and I followed somebody who was making a difference, not expecting anything, but I received so much positive feedback. And nation beyond nationwide and globally and that was really exciting a little bit a little bit scary but yeah and at the Washington State track meet you won the 800 1600 and 3200 and you came in third in the 400 is that correct um I came in second in the 400 unfortunately but yeah the rest of it is right (laughs) The 400 is not my race. Don't, uh, <laughs> not, it's not my favorite race. But that is such an, incredible, such an incredible feat in itself to do all four of those races in one meet. Um, and then you add the extra psychological component of running each of those races for a woman in your community who was murdered. How did you experience that meet in those races compared to previous meets? It was definitely so much different than I ever anticipated. I will Mm. say that I was woefully unprepared for my first race. Mm. I had no idea the type of weight that I was going to carry. And so when I got done with my first race, that was when it really hit me. that This was on Thursday, and I ran the race for my aunt, Alice Looney. Um, She went missing in 2004 um, from... Wapato Native American community Mm. and she was found 15 months later and clearly this was not a natural death Mm. but that's how police labeled it Um, Mm. and so it's just a very um, heavy topic in itself Mm -hmm. and when I ran that's who I was thinking of I was thinking of my aunt and Mm. how she was let down Mm. and it was definitely not the experience that I was planning to have months mm. before. Mm. Months before, I was thinking that I would have 
take the gold medal and I would feel amazing. I would feel on top of the world. But when I crossed the line and all I was thinking about was my aunt and the numerous of other women that have experienced things like this. And I was, uh, I was very sad. Um, mm. I was not happy at all. I even, I'm positive I was a little grumpy mm. with a lot of the people who were trying to, or I guess who were expecting me to be happy, of course, mm. after winning a state championship race. But I, I really wasn't. And I kind of just wanted to take the picture and get it over with. How did you bring yourself to a place where you were able to continue racing for the rest of the meet? Um, it really took a lot of support from mm. my family and my coach. And I took a phone call with um, Jordan Marie Daniel and I asked her, I ran this race terribly. And I mm. said, I, I felt, I didn't feel good. I didn't feel like myself. And I said, especially after the race, I felt even worse. And she told me that this type of weight, emotional weight, is normal. Mm. And it's something that I'm going to need to accept if I'm going to continue running with the paint. Because this issue is heavy and there's no way to go around it. Mm. She said, you might not run your best times. You might not even place the way you want to because of how heavy this is. And she says, but this is the work that needs to be done. Mm. And I accepted that. I accepted the fact that what I was feeling was normal. And I wouldn't quite say that it's, I wouldn't quite say that it made me race any better. But I would mm. say that psychologically, I was able to cope much better than the day before. Mm. And how has your running taken on a new purpose because of this experience at your state meet? Um, now running has really just been my gateway. Mm. Um, it's, it's shown me that it can, I can use running to amplify my voice. Mm. Um, and I think that was really special to me because running had never meant this much to me until I realized that it also made me realize that I can use running to amplify the voices of other people, that I can raise indigenous visibility through my running. And that has really changed the way that, not only the way that I run, but the amount of ethic that I put into it, because I know that the better I race at this meet, the faster that I get, you know, the bigger venues I can qualify for, and the more people I can reach through my races and through my running. And that that is probably the one thing that motivates me to run these 12-mile long runs and these 800 repeats in six-degree weather, for sure. So now you're in your first year of college at Iowa Central Community College, is that correct? Yes. Oh, uh, So are you running there? Yes, I am. Oh, wonderful. Um, so what was the expectation and attitude around attending college when you were growing up? Oh, yeah, that was definitely, um, it was very sometimes passive aggressive the way that college was viewed because it was expected that we go, but it was expected that we would struggle. It was expected that 
at least half of us were going to drop out just because that's how it's been historically. Mm -hmm. Um, About 12% of Native American graduates attend college and then only eight of that 12% actually graduate. And so it's, um, it was very isolating at first um, to come here and to be the only one mm-hmm. and to be underrepresented in the college and campus community. But it's something that my family has always ensured me that we need to do. My reservation in my community says, we know this is going to be hard. We know that you don't have very many people who have done this before, but you have to because you need this education to come back and help us. Mm. And yeah, it was, there's a, a little bit of waves as far as how Native Americans, especially in my community, feel about college, especially because it can be very emotionally laboring, sometimes having to educate a professor on something they've said that is culturally inaccurate or culturally offensive. And it can feel like you're going against the tide, really. But we're, we're motivated by our home and our families. So how have you been able to take care of yourself mentally while you're going through college and also training and dealing with the media <laughs> such as <Yeah>. myself? <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. Um, I would say that it's been very important for me to stay in contact with my mentors and with my family. Um, it can also be a little challenging for me because I know that um, at home, especially as of recently before I left, um, it was mainly I was in a single parent household for a moment and where I was, um, I guess, a caretaker for a lot of my siblings. And so it is hard to be away from them. And it's a means of staying in contact with them as much as I can and trying to see their faces, even through a screen. And um, just luckily, um, the career that I have, I get to sometimes fly home for events and conferences, which then means I also get to hang out with my family. So ironically, um, working, continuing to work means more opportunities that I get, which means possibly an opportunity back in Seattle where I get to go see my family again. How does that pressure affect your mental health? Um, I would say that I'm holding relatively well. I've grown in a, in a household where pressure was relatively common, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess my, my threshold for pressure is pretty high, just considering that I've always been in a position where I need to work, I need to continue, um, I need to push forward. And as frustrating as that may have been as I was growing up, I, I'm really grateful for it now because um, sometimes I'll even get a break for a moment and then I feel like I need to be doing something. You know, I need to be responding to some email or, or getting ahead in this class still and um, or doing rehab or or going the extra mile in training. So I would say that I'm, I've been handling pretty well. And when it gets stressful, I can always reach out to my family. 
um, just a few of my cultural practices that ground me again. What are some of the cultural practices that you do to keep grounded? Um, so I have a lot of um, just items from home. So mm. my great or my grandpa um, gave me a wooden flute that sometimes I play. I try to play it when nobody else is home so I don't bother them. But <laughs> yeah, so, and that just really grounds me. It reminds me, the sound of it really just reminds me of spending time with him and that calms me down. I also have um, a lot of medicines that I packed from home and that just smelling them like, um, like cedar and um, sage. Mm. And just a lot of the those um, medicines that I can keep with me and just, just having them around and smelling the smell of home is um, is very grounding. And sometimes all I really need is just a moment to remember who I am and where I'm from. Mm. Now that you've been away at school for over half of a year, when you return home, do you look at it in a different way? What have you learned about yourself or your community or your family from being away at school? I would say that I definitely took a few things for granted when mm. I was at home. Mm. Just as I think a lot of college students realize as they go off to college. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize how valuable these community events were. I've still attended them, but... I didn't really, I guess I just don't feel like I value them as much now that I've been gone. Mm. And now, especially when I go back home, I am constantly filling up my day. I don't care how tired I am. Like, I am going to see this person. I'm going to go to this event. It doesn't matter. Uh, one time I caught a terrible cold on New Year's, New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. where there was also um, a powwow celebration. And I just, I showed up in my regalia and my cough drop syrup and I said, this is happening. You know, I don't care. It's, I'm not, I'm not missing this. Great. So I'm curious, you said that you are the only Indigenous student that you know of at your college. How has your college or how has your college's athletic department been able to support you and support other students that come from marginal marginalized identities? I would say that luckily I go to a very diverse college as far as um, nationality goes. So a lot of the students here at Iowa Central are international. Mm-hmm. And so I have, I've had the opportunity to meet other students from various continents. And I think that they are um, cared for and listened to here, which I know is um, is a really unique quality of Iowa Central and is not very common in other, other especially other community colleges. But, um, I think the just the unique athletic environment here does allow me to to almost fit in with um, some of the other kids who aren't from here. So that can be nice. I actually really relate to um, a roommate from Italy because she is constantly talking about how home has better food and Mm -hmm. it's warmer. 
And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't really imagine what Italy is like, but I feel the same way. Home is warmer and it has better food. And then she talks about missing her family, which I can't even imagine for the students here who are international, who don't get to travel home nearly as much as I do, or who have to take a three-day plane ride to do so. Iowa Central does have a way of um, really being able to empathize with those of us who are far from home. Do you have any support groups on campus that help you connect with other students? Um, I do have TRIO, which is a, uh, it's for um, just students who are financially struggling sometimes. So they definitely give me a support system um, as far as like systematically. And socially, uh, there's no real groups here on campus, but I'm very fortunate to have a very closely bonded team mm. and an even closer bonded women's team. Mm. So my roommates are actually also my teammates. Wonderful. Which is, yeah, it's very nice. And I found a lot of support in my um, women teammates. Mm. How has your transition to training in college been? It's um, It was very difficult at first. So when I arrived here, um, I switched to a completely new diet just based off of the... Um, I really lost all of the indigenous foods that I was eating at home. Mm. And, um, and so I became very, very anemic, like mm. extremely anemic. It was pretty bad. Um, as far as just vitamin deficient in almost everything. My coach was very concerned after we did blood tests and found that my levels were low in everything and especially iron. And so I, I, um, sorry, I had a lot of injuries mm. my first semester in cross country. Um, and I was battling um, just a lot of vitamin deficiencies and so after going home, um, I spoke with my doctor and she gave me, so now I take um, two vitamins, two separate vitamins in the morning and in the night um, for my deficiencies, as well as just some experience as far as injury prevention, um, being in the training room every day, even if you don't have an injury at the moment. And it really has transformed my running and my indoor season. Mm. What are some of your goals that you're looking to reach right now in your running? So um, right now, I'm. this might be a little bit too specific, but by the end of this um, semester, I would really like to break five in the mile. Oh, awesome. What's your PR right now? The 502. So it's nice. right there. I'm just <laughs> hoping that it can get the little bit of extra push that I need. And um Right now, our women's team is put, is ranked second um, in the NJCAA, uh, I guess, nationals for our division anyways. And I'm really hoping that we can get the extra push from a few other girls on our team um, because a lot, most of my girls' team has all qualified for nationals in all of their events. That's so awesome. I'm, yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited. And I really just, even if we can't quite get um, a national championship, um, I 
really excited to put my part in and to race as many races as I possibly can at nationals. That's incredible that you get the experience of being on such a connected team that's also high, high performing. Is that one of the reasons that you ended up at that school? Oh, yeah, um, definitely. You, um, Iowa Central has a very outstanding record as far as athletic performance and where their athletes go after. And I knew that I was already going to face a lot of challenges coming from a Native American community and into a college setting. Mm-hmm. And I needed to go somewhere that would help me, especially in my running. And Iowa Central really fit that description. So are you going to be at school there? Is it a two-year program or a four-year program? Where do you see yourself afterwards? Um, I am definitely going to be here um, for the second year because it's a two-year program. Okay. And then I would like to transfer to a, I would say, a very decent um, running college after that. That's awesome. And yeah, great that you get those extra two years under your belt too to to really, really figure out the deficiencies and the challenges that you're going to face away from home so that you can then make a successful transition to even a higher level performing school. Yeah, thank you. And um, I'm very grateful for the support that I get here. So... Let's see, switching gears a little bit. The Iowa caucus is today, right? February 3rd. And yes. And I'm from New Hampshire, so our presidential state primary is is next week on the 11th. So is there any current legislature that maybe you're pushing for in terms of indigenous rights or that you can bring people's attention to that we should consider going into the polls? Yes. Um, thank you so much for asking that. Um, The Violence Against Women Act, the reauthorization of 2019, Mm. is um, a piece of legislature that would really acknowledge and combat the missing and murdered Indigenous women epidemic. Mm. And so if um, any of the candidates, I think, that you see who are, or at least who have acknowledged this legislation or have, who appear to be supporting it in any way, um, is really important to me personally and to the epidemic because it will really address the, um, I guess, the legislative and the legal um, gaps that are allowing this to continue to happen. Great. And how can non-natives support and engage in this movement in a way that's appropriate and respectful of Indigenous culture? Yeah, thank you. I would say that if you don't have any, um, I know not every per- everybody knows a Native American person, mm-hmm. and that's fine. I would say if you do, um, just uplifting them and amplifying their voices, helping them really share their message um, about how they feel about this epidemic mm-hmm. is one way. But of course, not all of us know Native people. So um, I would say educating your family or peers on um, the racism that Native Americans face. So, for example, speaking up against the chiefs, really just um, because whether or not you know a Native person, you are creating visibility for these communities. When when you combat that discrimination, 
just as an ally, it really, it goes so many lengths. You know, I can't remember a time where I haven't been grateful for an ally who stepped in for me when I was so tired of fighting. And I really just think supporting these movements, um, it makes, you might not have somebody always, a native person always saying thank you, or I appreciate you, but I am totally just anybody out there who does do this stuff, absolutely thank you, because it really does take a weight off of our shoulders. Is there any new dimension that you're looking to add to your activism or any projects that you're working on right now? Um, I would say that really um, when I recently um, released my um, TED Talk with TEDx Youth, um, and in that I really talk about my experiences with mental health and um, suicide, mm. and so I also kind of lean into um, the idea of youth empowerment through sports and mm-hmm. platforms. Mm-hmm. And so I will say, I will, I have been and always will be an advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women. But I also view that advocacy as multidimensional mm-hmm. because um, I also have very personal and strong feelings about um, suicide prevention as well as um, really just giving youth the ability to share their voices, to make change, and giving them those platforms to do so. And yes, thank you for for using your voice for so many many important causes. So when you're interacting with the media, is there anything that generally really frustrates you or that you don't usually get to talk about that you wish you did? Not too much recently. At the beginning, absolutely. Um, When I was initially interviewed about for my race, um, for for racing and um, winning state championships for missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, I had a lot of questions from a reporter that was similar to, well, how is your home life? Do you struggle with money? Do you struggle in school? Mm. And one time he, I was asked if I struggled in school and I responded with, well, I'm struggling in math right now, but I'm working on it and my grade will be fine pretty soon. And in the article that person wrote, it wrote that I struggled in school. Mm. And I was really like, he was just waiting for me to say the right thing so he could write his story. Mm-hmm. And that can be, re- it can be really frustrating to have these expectations to be set in these boxes. But it's really just a means of, um, of breaking them. And it can be tiring sometimes, but absolutely worth it. Yeah, that must be immensely frustrating to have people approach you with biases that they can't break. What is the most meaningful interaction that you've had through your media exposure and the work you've done? Um, I think definitely um, my interactions with the families of the missing and murdered Indigenous women epidemic. Mm. I've been... It's very emotional 
but at the same time, it gives me strength to personally see and speak to the families that I'm working for, mm. especially when um, and for as I might have mentioned earlier, Jacqueline Salyers, mm-hmm. um, who had children at the time of her death. And I actually, I also might have mentioned earlier a New, a New Year's powwow that I attended and that I was very sick. But her children were there. They had flown out um, from South Dakota. And they once they realized that I was there, they really wanted to see me and to talk to me and and they thanked me. They told me, her son told me that he was running track at the time. And he said, I was just, I was thinking about her a lot. And then um, Jacqueline's mom told her um, her grandson that a girl wants to run for your mom. Mm. And he just sounded very grateful. And to me, that made me feel like that was the biggest difference that I made, the mm. most important the most powerful and impactful difference I made was in her son Mm. and it was the difference that I made that was most important to me and so I think that is definitely a really impactful and memorable interaction I had because of the activism that I've chosen to pursue and moments like that especially when you're when you're going through so much hurt and dealing with such a, a heavy issue must must help bring you back down to the the purpose of what you're doing in the first place yeah absolutely it can be the double-edged sword sometimes because Mm. I also look at her children and I wonder how could this possibly happen right how Mm. how can she be taken away from them Mm. or there's no there's nothing that I can really do to bring her back but when I think like that, it's really just um, it's kind of like a rabbit hole, I guess. Mm-hmm. So now um, I, I've also learned how to think positively. I think he gets to remember his mother in a way that will incite change. Mm-hmm. And um, he gets to be a part of this movement, too, that will later generations on no longer have to exist. Mm-hmm. That's a really powerful way to look at it. If you keep doing all this work, then the people after you won't have to deal with it someday. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah, (laughs) that's what I hope too. So before we wrap up, I just have one sort of fun running question that I like to ask my guests. If you could rerun any workout or race or normal run that you've been on, what would it be and why? Oh my gosh. So, um, in my senior year of high school, I got to be a part of the Wings of America, a Native American cross country team, which Mm. is um, a select team that's run by Native Americans who find those Native athletes and Native runners who don't have the opportunities to get on these teams or don't have the resources and they actually all fly them out to New Mexico to train. Oh, wow. That's great. I'll have to listen to that team. Yeah, I really, I really love them. They, I was taken care of so well. Mm. So I I made that team and um, 
I got to run in New Mexico. It was my first time ever being there. And we went on a hike well, this one morning. It was like a hike slash run, but the hike started to get really intense because it was in the winter and there was snow everywhere. And then we realized that the paths weren't what they were supposed to be. So then we're doing parkour with these <laughs> rocks just to do what we're what was supposed to be like a very calm, very chill hike is suddenly like we're freezing and like sharing gloves because we didn't know it was going to be that snowy. And then like rock climbing practically over these huge boulders. And, um, <laughs> and then I remember accidentally knocking into something and knocking off snow from a cactus. And I just was in complete utter shock that there was cactus and snow in the same place. <laughs> Yeah, I did not and, know. It, <laughs> yeah, so then when I when I brushed off some snow off of what I thought was a rock and I saw a cactus, like I started freaking out. <laughs> um, and I just, and all of these, um, they were New Mexico natives. They were just like, what? Like, stop yelling. What's, stop. <laughs> like, what's, and I was like, this isn't, this isn't possible. This isn't supposed to happen. And it was just a very um, goofy but also um, very enlightening spirit experience that whenever I think about really just kind of uplifts me. What a great group. (laughs) Especially when you're in the midst of training by yourself too. Yeah, it was, it was very inspiring for sure. Have you stayed in touch with some of those people? Yes, I have. Um, Some of these people are actually within my division here in college. Oh, really? Um, so I get to see them at national meets. Oh, great. And we've talked about all wearing um, the handprint together. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, that is incredible. Great. So to finish up the podcast, my final question for you is, what is one piece of advice that you have for a younger version of yourself? And what is one message that you want to leave for a future version of yourself? Okay, awesome. Thank you. There was a lot of things that I would say to my past self, but um, (laughs) one thing that I really wish I knew was that you are powerful, you can make change, and you can inspire others. Mm -hmm. Because those three things were the exact opposite of how I felt in high school. Mm -hmm. And then one thing that I would say to my future self is, which I don't think this will ever happen, but um, to hopefully never forget where I come from and who keeps me going. Because that's something that I don't think I can ever, I would not be the same if I did not have my community. Well, Rosalie, it has been a true pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. And... I'm not sure if you knew coming in, but this is actually the first time I've interviewed someone that I don't know. So <laughs> last night I was a little um, a little concerned with the choice I made and hoping that that I wasn't that I wasn't going to completely butcher your story and that um, that I was equipped to be speaking with you. So I really um, really <laughs> you did um, like I really appreciated the way not even the questions that you asked but especially the um well I should say 
I like appreciated the questions that you chose to ask as well as when the way you responded to me was, um, it just showed that you knew a lot, or at least you're very, you're clearly an ally. And Thank you. That makes that always makes me feel so much more comfortable. It makes me so happy to see allies. They just they make me feel so safe and happy. And I I love having allies. So it was very nice to talk to you. Thank you. And I really hope that that people, especially young people who are changing the world like yourself, will continue to feel empowered to open themselves up to um, learn and speak the truth. So uh, yes. Thank you so much. Before we hang up, if anyone listening right now and myself included wants to continue following your journey or support any upcoming projects that you might have, what are the best ways for us to do that? So I am not super great with media. So in order that, I guess I would say um, usually... Instagram I have like an Instagram and that's what I'm best with that's what I'm most knowledgeable with mm-hmm. and I'm I'm pretty good at responding to everybody to everybody who sometimes I get a little bit sometimes it takes me like a few days because I like look at this and be like oh this person contacted me and then I forget about it for a while but that's definitely and I, I try to do a pretty good job of keeping my Instagram relatively updated as well Beautiful. Thank you. Huge thank you to Rosalie and to everyone who listened to this podcast. Please consider subscribing to the pod on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can reach out to me via email at triplenotpod at gmail.com. I hope you feel inspired to support Rosalie and consider how you can contribute to creating a safer, more inclusive world while respecting the depth of each person and each culture's individual experiences. Who do you run for?